The bottom line is this. The evidence that it's all an inside job has become really stark. Like it really seems that the inside job of finding the way our own brains work, measuring it, finding specific ways to rewire ourselves to where we actually can be, not just where we aspirationally in some esoteric way would like to be. So it's all about really bringing some deep neuroscience reality to this discussion. And what we see more and more is the consequences of our internal evolution of what you're going to see in the outside of your life. Welcome to the next Insights Podcast, intersecting science, technology, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Morrissey, strategic futurist and founder of Next Collabs. This podcast explores the transformative potential of generative AI and its many applications for personal, professional, and business growth. Join us where we celebrate the next insights, those aha moments that shift your point of view and open the door into the next paradigm. You'll hear the latest ideas and thought-provoking conversations with industry experts, authors, thought leaders, equipping you with the strategies to harness the relentless pace of change in the AI era. Whether you're a CEO, leader, or interested in personal growth, this podcast will give you the insights to leverage AI to amplify human potential and consciously shape the future for humanity first. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, welcome everyone to the Next Insights podcast. My name is Michael Morrissey. I'm your host, and it's my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Evian Gordon. Dr. Gordon is an applied integrative neuroscientist with a background in medicine and science. He's the founder of the first international database on the human brain and behavior, and his work focuses on applying new insights to bridge the gap between knowing and doing new habits. Dr. Gordon's expertise lies in using an integrative approach to understanding the brain and behavior, incorporating insights from various disciplines, such as neuroscience, psychology, and medicine. He's dedicated his career over four decades to exploring the complexities of the human brain and how we can use this knowledge to improve our habits and our behaviors. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Evian join us to discuss his book, The Brain from Knowing to Doing. And by the way, he hosts the Total Brain podcast and has an absolutely great website, highly recommend it, with an invaluable library of videos from the book. And we'll put that in the show notes, both the podcast links and the website link. We've been hosting Dr. Evian in our thought leadership community at Bookflow for the past several episodes and have become very fast friends with a passion for Jungian themes and influences. We're both ENFPs and both of us have access to our creative artistic abilities to outpicture our thoughts. It's like over and above all of this work in science, Dr. Evian is an artist as well and has published a book on his paintings called Brain Sight Art. I was in San Francisco a few months ago and he gave me a signed copy. Absolutely amazing. I spent a couple of hours with it this morning. I have a, definitely a few favorites. Behind you right now is one of the pieces I really like. I think that one's called The Big Bang. Absolutely beautiful piece, Evian. And he's had several exhibits in Manhattan. And it's really a testament to his capacity to explore the full range of human potential within himself, like self-insight, what Jung would call, I would say, wholeness, and in turn, really self-actualization. There's no question in my mind that Evian is a transcender. And also, I might add that he has collaborated with a very, very good friend and colleague, John Vitale, over at Brain Music Labs. 
highly recommend the video that they co-host together and describe the work that they're collaborating on. And also another new friend, Crystal Fernando at Whatbox and their intriguing work that both Evian and Crystal are doing together on possibility thinking that bridges the gap between the non-conscious and conscious mind and brings it really to corporations and organizations related to innovation. By the way, we're hosting a panel discussion on your brain on AI implications for innovation in a few weeks with Gary Bowles, Dr. Evian, Crystal Fernando, and myself. So just to give you a sense of the overarching structure for this podcast conversation, we're going to break it up according to three parts, which echoes the three parts in the book. The book is about how to bridge the three biggest gaps in life. One, knowing, closing the gap between non-conscious emotion and rational thinking. Two, doing, the Gordon three-step plan to get across the knowing to doing gap and habit. And three, bringing it home, sort of the most comprehensive picture of all integrative wisdom and his advice to embrace all wisdoms wherever you find them. So I'd like to start with, you know, I think someone who we've both been sort of touched deeply by, and that's the work of Carl Jung. And let's start with this quote, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And when you start into your book or into your video series, you kind of surface this concept, quoting from you, that you need to align and harmonize your conscious and non-conscious. And until you do that, you're walking around in the dark. So I see the alignment between Jung's thoughts and your thoughts very much. You're almost like a contemporary kind of version of Jung himself. So welcome to the podcast. So great to have you here. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the hyperbole about me. I, I'm not at all at the level of Jung, but I have so enjoyed my interactions with Next Collabs. And I just think the community that you and Gary have pioneered is just quite marvelous and timely. So what a marvelous place to start. You know, I want to emphasize though that, you know, when Jung and Freud and big great thinkers of their time were around, they didn't have the virtue, Michael, of the information about the brain that we had. I mean, as you know, you know, Freud's initial project was to set up a brain database and to study the brain as a system, as a neurologist. And he was disappointed at how little data was available and then went on and sort of got a little more interested in concepts that were a little more theoretical. But what Jung has done is look at the interconnectedness of everything, of our life's journey, and how what a ongoing process of self-insight and change it is as we all on some kind of path it towards integrative wisdom and we all have different levels i'm extremely limited the humility of setting up the world's first standardized and integrative database on the human brain was very very confronting because it exposed me to a lot of information from the big bang to the deepest level of Darwin's theory, and he's not just about the origin of species, and our human brain is primarily about, you know, recently evolved in, since three million years ago. We've trebled in brain size, hominids, and, um, and I suppose the initial shocking realization for me was how much the brain is about shortcuts and short term. And as we evolved, this trebling in brain size since Mrs. Plays and the origins of humankind in Southern Africa, uh, that then we adaptively expanded across the planet. But it shocked me how poorly reconciled these non-conscious 
shortcut, short-term processes are to our rational thinking and how poorly we sometimes connect, harmonize those processes. So let me just start off by saying that my focus has been data. And I don't mean data in a simplistic way. Setting up the world's first whole brain database was, was like a masochistic process. I, I left the golden highways of my cardiology PhD after I'd finished it, didn't finish my cardiology training, switched to the brain, and then stayed there for 40 years whilst I felt like a Sisyphus journey of pushing a big rock uphill every day, but a very privileged journey up that hill, but one that really exposed me to the principles that are around, and as always, the principles will change, and there's a lot, of course, we don't know about the brain, but we do seem to know a lot more in the last 40 years about the essence of the way the brain works. So to your point about the non-conscious and conscious, so in terms of the data that I've assembled and the, again, I've been super privileged because I set up this database, deal with many of the people who really did found the original field of applied integrative neuroscience around the world. And when I put all the thoughts and the magnanimous sharings together and the data, what seems to be happening in terms of our current knowledge is that within a fifth of a second, we have these emotions which are determining cues as to what's threatening and what's rewarding and intuitions as to what's going to, what's the best possibility for us in, in, and this happens in a fifth of a second, which is shocking. And we actually built laboratories to measure elements of that. And then at about half a second, we're aware in our bodies of the consequences of those decisions. Is it threatening? We know our heart rate goes up. We sweat. We breathe more quickly. We have a gut feeling if there's an intuition that seems like immediate. And then all the sequelae start kicking in in this highly interconnected cosmos between our ears, a hundred trillion connections, 85 billion neurons, a massive soup of chemicals, over a hundred. Anyway, the point about his quote that is still prescient today is that, yes, we have started to have a deeper appreciation that our non-conscious, and I deliberately call it non-conscious, not unconscious. Why? Unconscious implies we're not aware of it. I think we're actually surprisingly aware of a lot of it, and I'll come to that in a moment. But these unconscious, non-conscious processes, or what Freud and Jung and others would call unconscious, they drive a huge amount of our consequent decision-making and personality types and behavior. So that's kind of remains the biggest revelation for me. The greatest privilege is just sort of, as I say, when I feel like I'm not harmonized, I feel like I'm walking around in the dark. And it would seem to me as I've dealt with many projects around the world and, you know, million data sets in the database and programs with some very large institutes and, and, and organizations. And you look at all the data. It seems like many people feel the same way that when they not reconciled from their negative thoughts that seem to hijack them, for example, and they don't have a good strategy of how to harmonize that in their lives, how to, how to not focus on their past regrets and their future fears, but how to be fully present when that's not harmonized. It's a challenge. It's frac what I call brain fracture, and brain fracture is very real. So I say to Jung, yeah, but we now are really at a stage where we're working on strategies to how to specifically train that in the moment, in one second, or how to put ourselves in a better state so that the fractures don't happen or happen less. And lastly, I'd say 
you know, Jung had a different view ultimately about what the solution was. He, you know, he really did. And other people who are more spiritual than I am, I'm more like a sort of Sam Harris variant of everything is interconnected and they are marvelous. I feel myself as a very spiritual person in my work, in my art, because I focus on the interconnectedness. But in some places, in, in Jung's case, synchronicity, for example, which I see as contagion, you know, act of serendipity. But it's a very similar principle, whether you think it's actually physically manifesting from this cosmos inside our brains that's causing these ripple effects, or whether you think the cosmos is actually got some other way of connecting to us, is a philosophical discussion. The science and the philosophical ideas, and the last point I'll make on this, Michael, are convergent. They are not as far apart as people think, in my opinion. There's a marvelous integrative context by, instead of focusing on what's different, start off by looking at what can we learn from the marvelous wisdoms of the past, like Jung, and how can we add value from data, from insights, from interdisciplinary ideas, and start with that convergence. And then, yeah, sure, push out the boundary till we get our level of comfort or discomfort, or more importantly, insights, the point of this podcast. So that's a very long answer, but I'm afraid it's a very difficult quote. So that's the best I got. Well, I mean, I think the, you know, it directs your life and you call it fate when it, as you say, it's a fracture or young or let's say using psychological parlance, it would be like they would call it splitting, right? Where you're splitting, you're too one-sided, right? And so I think with Jung and others, it's all about finding wholeness. And you have in your artwork and so on, you talk about circles a lot in your work. It's a constant theme. This was a big theme for Jung. I mean, Jung would draw a Mandela every day. I was almost like a practice, like meditation, to just redash mind himself that, you know, wholeness is the project here. And when we're talking about closing the gap between the non-conscious here and the conscious mind, and in a way, like even I would say Sam Harris has found that kind of center point between those two and is kind of placing himself there. I would also compare this to the analogy to science and philosophy or spirituality. Sam Harris has got through neuroscience, through the data, through the fMRIs and so on, says, you know, there's a midpoint here now. We can use the C word. We can talk about consciousness. And perhaps that's what he's doing. Like I use the waking up app every day. And he kind of guides me to that place of that kind of center point between the non-conscious and the conscious. That I think maybe we're at that stage in the 21st century, unlike the 20th century. The dawn of the 20th century, we had the old world and then we had modernism. And so simultaneously, the birth of psychology, right? And modern art, which, uh, you know, abstract expressionism, all those things to me are all sort of like the surfacing of the unconscious or the non-conscious into the conscious world. We spent a century kind of, let's say, coming to terms with that, reconciling it. Now, as we update to the 21st century, your book is mapping out, as Sam Harris is, that point where you can place yourself in the midpoint of that between the opposites. And I think that's perhaps the next stage of our evolution. Yeah, well, that's absolutely could be. But what I also want to add, what I think the neuroscience has pointed to, and I think that's a great summary of where we're at, but I'd like to say that I think then the point of my book and the point why after 40 years of not doing these kinds of broad summaries 
and insights. But I thought, you know, I'm 71 now, uh, you know, I could die soon. And I, my friends were driving me nuts to um, start summarizing the learnings rather than just keeping them constrained to my very small band of brain warriors. Applied Integrative Neuroscience Brain Warriors would be, it's been just the most marvelous privilege to work with. So the point I think that I share the most is that the philosophical views of this are marvelous, but where I focus on and where other applied integrative neuroscientists focus on is the data and where that becomes transformative in itself. And as you know from my sharing in the next collabs book club, it all comes down to changing the time scale. Most of what we talk about are very nice big concepts. Uh, there's a lot of debate, a very polarized debate on this landscape of the brain and mind and soul. Yeah, I love those. I could do those all day and have for 40 years and for much of my time. But really, the majority of my time is being spent on, okay, what can we do about this? What's real? And as in science, it's all a moving, iterative process. And the bottom line is this. The evidence that it's all an inside job has become really stark. Like it really seems that the inside job of finding the way our own brains work, measuring it, finding specific ways to rewire ourselves to where we actually can be, not just where we aspirationally in some esoteric way would like to be. So it's all about really bringing some deep neuroscience reality to this discussion, the sort of third leg of the, the stool, in my view, or even the epicenter in some ways. So the first thing is it is a massive inside job. And what we see more and more is the consequences of our internal evolution of what you're going to see in the outside of your life. I'm assuming now your people have their separate views about whether there's an external energy that's participating in that. I'm suggesting that whatever your views on that, let's start off by looking at how much of your own life do you really shape in terms of how you show up, how present you are, what your contagion is to yourself, your own inner peace, your own fracture or harmonization between your non-conscious and conscious brain, your emotions, your intuition, non-conscious, your feelings and your rational thinking, personality and behavior, conscious, at least they're all hugely interconnected. But the interfaces between those two processes, the line, the dynamics, non-conscious and conscious. So my point is, Michael, it's an inside job and it has huge consequences. There are ripples that come out of us. And that took me a long time to realize because like everyone else I knew in my younger age when I had more hubris than was healthy, and I probably still do, but I certainly am more aware of what my role has been in making bad decisions, what my role and brain function has been in being responsible for failed relationships, what my role has been and responsible for in creating negative dynamics where because I'm frustrated or I feel like seriously like what the fuck is wrong with you no what the fuck is wrong with me uh, you know first and foremost what is the fraction of a second my view is we are not victims I mean of course there's some scenarios which are just indisputably physically in position whatever physical crazy psychopathic sociopathic violence borderline personality disorder manipulation I've got they're all those kind of opportunistic things that we don't really have a lot of control over. But I mean, in the normal course of events, we have enormous capacity in showing up with some brain insight that is more than just personality, extroversion, introversion, that is deep in terms of our positive and negative intentionality, what we say versus what we do, our body language cues 
tell the truth far more than what we say. And so we are opening that door, Michael, and we've measured, literally measured, the non-conscious brain in action to some degree, which I have shared with the community. So the first and foremost thing I'd say is that where I think the discussion is getting deeper is that it's an inside job and it happens quickly. It happens in the moment, in a second, you know, seconds. So therefore, what can we do about this? And I want to just end off in this discussion of saying one thing I would say that the discussion is getting more okay. It's, if it's non-conscious, it's very hard to just change it just like that. But you can systematically, for example, show up with a better attitude. That's less likely to lead to fracture. You can work on your insights about what is disharmonized. So here's a simple quote that I love and the hundreds. And, I, and look, we could look at psychotherapy, the whole history and depth of psychotherapy as a sort of deeper example of them. But I love the ACIM day 21 quote from Helen Schuckman that even a minor irritation is a veil drawn across intense fury. Let's just think about that for a moment, that there are dynamics, which of course in psychotherapy, I've studied psychotherapy for many years and partially trained in psychotherapy as well, but all of these nuances, the psychodynamics are real and we can find different windows as to how to put a bigger lens on this in-the-moment layer. And there are many examples, you know, there's uh, just many examples of these disconnects, what I call mismatch magnification, where people go, oh, I really appreciate what you've done. But you can hear in their voice, in their tonality, in their body language, that they can have a different, um, you know, subtle things, cues, pupil dilation. Our body reads so many things that are powerful in this real, what I call the real discussion, the real dynamics. And they're way beyond the PC and the, all the other useful sort of attempts at sort of social justice. This is the real rubber hits the road of let's have some more honest discussions about the actual dynamics in real time in what is going on in ourselves, between our people we deal with, in our teams, and even in our society. So that's the difference. And lastly, Michael, I'd say the other thing where the data has become fascinating in the last three decades, which I've sort of tried to summarize in the habit part, which is to rewire your brain, to really transform, to choose your new wiring networks, we need to carry forward that insight of the fraction of a second dynamics and their implications and really include that in the rewiring process. I have not seen many people change because of information alone or because of motivation that's transient. If we do not have a plan and an insight into our own flaws and our own strengths, and we do not do a microscopic step-by-step way of finding those little wins every day that give us a dopamine buzz and that we can share with people and feel the oxytocin. We don't build that micro habit story and then have some idea about the compounding effects of that to really change and rewire our brains. If we don't change the language to rewiring, we're going to be having esoteric discussions about the brain for a long, long time to come. And I'm not saying lastly that, you know, it's stratified, highly personalized, 
it's highly stratified. You know, you, you don't want to use drugs first. You want to use drugs last. There's a lot we can do with, you know, mental health, well-being and peak performance that capture and harvest and harness these dynamical brain insights of the brain as a system and use them more effectively. And they can be inspired by these bigger ideas. But big ideas do not rewire the brain. We've got to reconcile those big ideas, the gap between the concept and the very thoughtful, very personalized reality of implementation. So that, I think, is what is slightly different. The science has dramatically evolved in the last, especially the last four decades. I mean, I think that's the impetus for the book Waking Up by Sam Harris is that because of the data and neuroscience, the realization or even the efficacy of that this is an inside job, right? And that the idea of the bridging the gap between non-conscious and conscious, I almost see it more like, can you expand the gap so that you have a chance to reflect? Like this is an inside job. This is not called the next outside podcast. It's called the next insight podcast. And it's insight. I think that's what Sam Harrison waking up and that whole movement of mindfulness, meditation, breath work, a cold plunge, all those techniques help us to, you know, drop into the now. And I think that's where we expand the gap between knowing and doing. And then we get a chance to have some agency rather than being just a victim of that initial pulse that comes from sort of the instinctual kind of center of our being, right? How do we expand that gap? Now, when we go to therapy, we actually are practicing trying to expand the gap because we're sharing it with another. That's another very, very efficacious practice. If you have a problem, share it with someone else. That's almost like the first thing to do in some ways. But maybe we back up now when we know that we could expand the gap between knowing and doing, and that gives you a second chance at thinking about this differently. One of my mottos is hurry up and slow down. It took me many years to develop that sort of motto and serves me extremely well. I think that's like a little piece of wisdom. Hello, book enthusiasts, knowledge seekers, and lifelong learners. If you're passionate about diving deep into the realms of technology, science, and consciousness, then consider joining us in our Bookflow membership. In our unique community, we don't just read books, we immerse ourselves in them. Every week, we come together to dissect and absorb the groundbreaking ideas and content that shapes our world. And the best part, we often have authors themselves join us for riveting discussions. Previous guest authors include Gary Bowles, Scott Barry Kaufman, Stephen Kotler, Salim Ismail, Charlene Lee, Byron Reese, Franz Johansson, and many others. Join us for thought-provoking conversations with members from diverse backgrounds, each bringing their unique perspective to enrich our discussions. Visit our website in the show notes and sign up today and use the promo code to get 50% off your first month. Don't miss out on this opportunity. I look forward to seeing you in our Autotelic community. I love that example. You know, I want to just give an, as an intro because, you know, what I do is look at the applied human brain data, applied integrated neuroscience. So just to give another example, you know, Michael, that really fascinated me about reconciling these sort of spiritual wisdoms and the science. And I'd love to just, you mentioned, you know, that everybody and has, has looked at, you know, meditation now and, and other techniques. There's a raft, I, I think this example I'm going to give of meditation, 
there are many, many, many other examples we could look at, you know, brain stimulation, psilocybin, it goes on and on and on. But here's my example. So when we look at meditation, this marvelous history of these wisdoms from the East, of presence, breath, and slow breathing, of just, but mainly of these depths of being present, very simple, non-judgment, very simple presence. And of course, it was attributed to, and correctly so in many ways, to spiritual practices. And then comes along a number of people, including John Kabat-Zinn. But I think the most impactful example to me of this beautiful reconciliation between the wisdoms of the West and the, of the East and the power of science was Herbert Benson. Herbert Benson, a Harvard cardiologist, with the help of the Dalai Lama, went and studied these people in practice in meditation, and he measured them. And he went through a lot of challenge to get this research done and publish it in Nature. But the long and the short of it is this. What Herbert Benson showed is that repetition of any stimulus will create a sense of presence and of calmness. Any stimulus, breath, sound, like we do with Brain Music Labs, movement, Tai Chi, yoga, it doesn't matter. So the beauty of that, let's just think about that for a moment. That simple scientific depth of insight means that we can look afresh at the integrative wisdoms rather than the polarized, my, you know, my spirituality, one of 4,000 variants is better than yours. It's the depth of the insights of these practices and, and wisdom. And then Herbert Benson said something that really sort of brings it all together in addition to the brilliance of that depth of that core Applied integrative neuroscience principle. Repetition of any stimulus will create a calm and flexible state and switch off your fight flight system to some degree. Then he said, however, the additional association that you have to it, if you are deeply spiritual, whatever you use, Hail Mary, whatever your mantra of association is, whether you're a Ramdas fan like me or whether you're a just love different conceptual associations. You know, my friends who are more stoic have very different kind of language. And my research colleagues, very different collaboration. The association is a separate synergistic benefit. So let's start deconstructing, or well, that's what we try and do, deconstruct what is common that everybody can use. Because, you know, the beauty of the brain, it is the only thing we have in common. Everything else seems to divide us. Culture, nationalism, the brain is it. Let's share the common, amazing evolutionary heritage we all have. Well, you know, 99.9% .9 of our genes all the same. We have these minor differences, but we wire differently and we are conditioned differently and we have different bonding and we have different ways of coping and we have different genetic predispositions to just about everything. So bring those key simple principles together and they've all got deep data. And then let's look at the Herbert Benson example and help deconstruct even the deepest, most profound sort of ideas. They are all now ready, I think, for a different level of harmonization in themselves and application and personalization. I mean, powerful, that kind of meta principle of repetition. So that would be, is that part of the doing? That's part of your three-step habit plan? It's an essential part of the doing. It's not just what you do is what I've taken away from Benson and many others. I'm just giving an example. But then the next level is how you do it. You know, it's like people who do exercise. It's the difference between doing a push-up and a push-up with form. Good point. It's like 
they are two different things, right? There's no, why would that be any different, Michael, than in the brain? So when I look at, let's just go through the, the sort of spectrum that we have in the international database. If you look at people with mental health, let's say somebody's got negativity bias, depression, magnifying negativity. So you can try and be more positive, which is one thing, or you can look at the granular strategy of what you're going to do when you have a negative broken thought, a perseverative negative broken thought. What is your exact strategy that you can harness of what will work for you and magnify that? If we move to well-being, for example, in this, if you look at a normal distribution, if you look at the mental health on the left, problems, challenges, challenges with coping, but just that example of negativity bias, what's the specific strategy? Then we look at well-being in the middle, the balance, the harmony of life, the homeostasis. How well are you doing your pillars of life, you know, your pillars of health, calm, move, eat, connect, and sleep? So again, what are the specifics? What is your plan to really do it? Not go through the motions, but that's where these Herbert Benson principles that yeah, you want to Get, it's the not just what you do, but the quality with which you do it. And then lastly, peak performance, where it really matters, because it's the same principles, same brain principles applied to mental health, to well-being, and peak performance. But in peak performance, there's the flow. There's the absolute harmonization, the absolute detail, extreme optimization of the personalization to the situation, to the skill. So when we take the lens to the right focal length, which is really what, if you look at any, and I sort of am a student of the history of scientific revolutions, you know, from Kuhn Samurai, it's like, these come very rarely, but when they come, like a Darwin, he just had the right lens. And it's actually great privilege to me. I'm friendly with his great-great-grandson, Chris Darwin, and go through his original script or just hear it from his, even his, his current relatives, you can hear the big, to thinking of he had the right lens of how it all fitted together. A lot of people had the data. He had the right lens of how to fit it together. And on it goes, Jung, he saw that there were these archetypes. He saw that there were these fundamental capacities that we all have, but tweaked slightly that give us different personality types, that there are symbols across all of our cultures that show this ongoing quest that humans have. Where Ever they are, and we look at peak performers, and we see that they have a different level of bringing all this together, especially in the moment. Even though usually it's in a, or often it's in a very narrow way. So we've got lots to learn in our integrative wisdom journey. So that's why I say, if you if you pull the pieces together, the general principles, especially wherever you find them, it's a marvelous way to do ourselves. You know, people like me are just guides on the side to share the integrative knowledge and the data, guides on the sides to help achieve these next level of personal integrative frameworks and wisdom, basically. I love that. I mean, one of the quotes from your book, Brain Sight, I think it's a, it's a brain art site or brain sight art. It's brain sight art, yeah. And you said all art is brain art. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about your, you know, artistic quest to you know, outpicture all this experience that you've sort of built up over several decades in your career, you would think, you know, you're a scientist, data first, evidence-based first kind of person, but no, you've kind of been able to surface the unconscious, thinking fast kind of contents and let them kind of hit the canvas, if you will, <laughs> right? 
abstract expressionism is one of your stylistic kind of like sources. It's my only stylistic. Yeah. So, you know, you have this amazing ability, Michael, where you can just in one sweep, you can put so much stuff together. It's amazing. So I'll tell you why it's a, it's a good place to come back to the same place where we started with a fresh lens. Here's what the fresh lens was for me. I was very defensive when I first started to tell people that I was an artist. I used to paint once a week on Saturday afternoons, which I still do. When I was a young medical student, I just discovered art. I discovered that my predilection in life was to look at patterns, the patterns that really matter. How does it all fit together? I wasn't a typical science. And then I became the head of a brain institute. It was marvelous because I was able to look at the patterns. When I set up the world's first standardized integrative database, working with Steve Koslow and people like those from the Human Brain Project, we could see the big picture. There's so much silos. There's so much details, which are all important. So here's the point. I was very defensive because when you tell people you're an artist and your job is actually brain science and medicine, there's a kind of, there was a kind of, oh, you know, it's supposed to be kind of, you know, lightweight, superficial, you know, la-la land. And then over time, I became much less defensive and very proud, actually, to just be a searcher. And art, Michael, turned out to be my brain teaching me about myself. And I then one day after about a decade of painting every week and all these different phases of art, I had art that was just about patterns that seemed to me to be about the non-conscious and conscious brain. It was abstract expressionism. And then for two years, I painted screen faces, screen faces. That's it. Two years. And then I started to paint paintings that were sort of more into it. So here's the point that this was and why I think Jung must, I think Jung found mandalas. And I knew it all along, but I only realized it for real when it happened to me. I think our first language was non-conscious. I don't think our first language was words. I think our first language was patterns. Where are the patterns of where, where are the animals? Where's the sun rising and falling? What's the season stuff? And so I think our brain non-consciously, these patterns are not words. They are symbols. You absolutely nailed it. They are language emerge from those symbols. Our second language as humans, in my opinion, and my summary of the pattern, is words and numbers, which we worship and we love. And now with AI, we're going to worship and love even more. But I think there's a danger, and we'll come to it when we do the AI discussion in next collabs. There's a hubris in AI, in my view, about how that the human brain's not as easily usurped as people think. There is a profound depth of patterns and insight and i suppose art was just the little reminder my brain was giving me don't forget about your first language your core that often gets overwhelmed by the noise and your juggling and your pleaser prison that you're in for i had a genetic pleaser prison sort of upbringing well you know my my role was to please people It's, it's awful prison to be in and i eventually got out of it but we've got to find our own authenticity And we eventually do. We get beyond the opportunists and the performances and the masks and the veils. Eventually, we start seeing the masks slip and the veils start dissipating. And art was my teacher, Michael, that this is simply another part of my lens in the supplied integrative neuroscience process. It was a lens that was one of the lenses into the non-conscious world and into people's non-conscious brain. And when I had my exhibitions, I don't 
particularly like doing exhibitions, they're pretty confronting, actually. You're putting your soul up on the wall. Yeah. People are going, what does that painting mean? What do you mean you don't know? You're a neuroscientist. I say, well, what do you think it means? And then people, especially the, art, the exhibitions in New York, people would give me summaries about the, it was like a Rorschach test. They would articulate things to me, Michael, that were better put than I have put to you in this entire podcast because people know. They know their inner selves. But they so, we've got so many rules about communicating and expectations and language and trying to impress people and sell ourselves and all these things in masks and veils. It's like, you know, it's challenging. So when you just give people an art picture and ask them about themselves or better, even get them to paint themselves, which I often do, by the way. I've done it for kids from the age of four to people who are really old. It is shocking how beautiful and how revealing those patterns are. So art began as a kind of peripheral journey for me and ended up as being a very integral counterpart. And that is exactly what Jung did. He showed us that the whole exploration of mandalas, archetypes, symbols, all were maybe part of this dual language that was a reflection of our core brain's duality of non-conscious and conscious processes that are going on all the time. And we have a cultural bias towards rationality that I think has served to diminish the power. And of course, Einstein, of course, said it better than anyone where, you know, he said, you know, imagination is more powerful than knowledge. And of course, that is never, never have I heard a truer context than that. I love that. That's a beautiful way to kind of end the conversation. The way I kind of see this is I want this to be an ongoing conversation with you and love to have you come back again soon. Perhaps we can do a podcast related to your brain on AI implications for innovation that we're going to run that event and then we can come back and we can discuss everything we just discussed, this entire framework that you've set out beautifully in the book, The Brain from Knowing to Doing. But then what happens when we add AI to this gig? Love that. Well, that's been a revelation for me. You know, my friends say to me, what do you mean you've, you've fallen in love with AI? You're 71 years old. What is wrong with you? And I go, no, seriously, this is the greatest potential advance. Of course, it's the greatest potential disaster too. One of the, of course, I know that. But I look forward to that. I value being a part of your community, our community, and I'm grateful for this. And I just want to add one other thing about the book. The book is really just one piece of the process. The videos and the podcast that people have done, and this one hopefully will be added to the picture, is all part of this ongoing discussion. So I, I look forward to adding to it in whatever way works. Wonderful to speak to you, Michael. Fantastic session. And I agree. Your videos, and I think you're you're just about to release some short vids. They're called Brain Bites. Yeah, Brain Bites. So the site, which is com, And again, thanks to Carlton Royds and all the other people who put John, John Vitale, who helped push that out and get it out, Will Sams. But it was, it started off with overview videos and then they get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And now we're down to brain bites in 60 seconds. So it's been fun. It's been a fun sort of collage of communication. And if you, you go back to the beginning of your book, the idea of short term and sh- and quick kind of like results for those dopamine hits. I mean, you're fashioning it just basically to optimize for, you know, integration, like quick integration. Totally. Really love it. So um, look forward to our next conversation, Dr. Evian. All the best. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Next Insights podcast. 
If you enjoy this episode, take a screenshot and share it with a friend. And if you really love the podcast, head over to wherever you're listening and leave a rating or a review. This helps our show get in front of more people interested in shaping the future of science, technology, and consciousness. Finally, to receive even more insights on what we're discussing, thinking, and reading at Next Collabs, sign up for our weekly newsletter by clicking the link in the show notes. I'll talk to you next week, but until then, consciously embrace disruption, my friends. <laughs>